Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to another edition of On The Continent, your one-stop shop for everything to do with European football. I'm Dotson Adebayo. I'm Andy Russell. And I'm Miguel Delaney. On today's edition... The Italian papers is saying you can lose to Chelsea, but not like that. Based on the shellacking of Juventus at Stamford Bridge the other night, the biggest in the club's Champions League history, can Juventus survive the last 16? Meanwhile, whatever happened to the likely lads at Atletico and Dortmund? No place for them in the knockout stages, perhaps. Is there time as the Champions League upsets is over? And the last thing the beleaguered league and needs is another match to be abandoned. And after only a few minutes, how can the league protect its product and its players? Should we start in Italy, Andy? Juventus going to Stamford Bridge and looking very, very ordinary. This is arguably one of the teams that you can't imagine a Champions League last 16 without. But do they deserve a place there this season? Um, well, they do because of the group they're in. But it, it was quite shocking to see how comprehensively they were dismantled by Chelsea, particularly in the second half, I thought. And it's, it's not the sort of thing we expect to see with Juventus. But it sort of made me cast my mind back. And I'm interested to hear what 
Miguel has to say about this because I know he was at Stanford Bridge on, on Tuesday night. Um, I was at the game when Atletico lost the uh, second leg against Chelsea in the last 16 last season. And just the sheer brutality of it and the gap between the two was it was jarring. It was it, it was it was so noticeable. Now clearly Chelsea are, are excellent and they're one of the contenders to to win this again. I I, I think realistically there are four teams that are up for the Champions League as I said on the Ramble earlier in the week um, it's Chelsea Liverpool City and Bayern and I just think those four are a huge cut above everyone else but w- were you shocked at Juventus when you saw them at first hand Miguel? Not really just because of the way results have gone had there not been that in between then I was actually at the first game as well in Turin which was probably Juventus' best performance of the season so far but I suppose it was a very specific type of performance in that it was... A very Allegri type of yeah, performance, right? Compact and really hurt Chelsea on the uh, on the break. And I can tell you like, these kind of spiky spiky runs forward, particularly from Chiesa. Uh, this, Chelsea just never allowed them to do that. Uh, in fact, I think the first major moment of the game was basically Kante just surging through that Juventus backline, and from then it was it was as if Juventus just couldn't live with their in, with their intensity. Um, so I, I mean, some of that I suppose has to be put into the context of there's been a, a definite improvement in Chelsea since then as well. I know from that first game, uh, Tuchel was a bit irritated by how, he, as I think he put it, since uh, Chelsea tried to play as a possession team, when they're not, he doesn't really want them to be a possession team. He wants mm. them to be more. Uh, much more kind of pressing on, on transition. Um, I mean, I think there's a few things going on here. Just even when you mentioned there about the potential contenders for the Champions League, three of them being English. I mean, one of my fears is, and we can see it from the kind of Premier League contract the other night in, on TV rights in America, we're getting, yes. we could be getting into a new half decade, maybe decade, who knows, where it's going to be basically English teams dominating and maybe a Bayern or a Paris Saint-Germain every now and then um, and because, I mean, Juventus are by far Italy's biggest club, and their revenues are so much, so far below that real top tier of the super clubs. So all of this is going on as they also try and reshape their squad. Um, and I, I think that's what summed up the game for me. It was very much the look of a team that is figuring out what next and doesn't really know what... I mean... That, that's it. I mean, that is the difference, isn't it? The, the, the way the rest of Europe, and I think Bayern are a particularly good example of this, has, has made up the gap between the best teams of the Premier League mm. when there's been such a, a financial chasm is by planning well, yeah. by organising well. And that's something, and I think we see it coming home to roost here, that Juventus emphatically haven't done in yeah. the last couple of years. Now, I know everyone will point to the Ronaldo signing, and there's a lot of truth in that. And yes, we understand that what he did on the pitch was well, pretty much what Ronaldo he did. Well, yeah, to an extent. Not blaming Ronaldo, but blaming the Ronaldo signing because the cost of it just completely fettered any sort of aspirations of regenerating the team. And I think if you go back to the first spell where Allegri's in charge, I mean, he inherits a team from... Conte and straight away he has to replace some big players when Vidal goes when Pirlo goes when Carlos Tevez goes and you know Conte always said I don't have the resources to go and do something in the Champions League and of course the very next season (laughs) with um, pretty much the same squad um, 
Allegri, Allegri gets to the final where they, they lose to Barcelona and it's, you know, one of uh, two Champions League finals in, in, in three years. But um, that, that that thing that Allegri presides over where there's that constant regeneration, kind of like a, a speeded up version of Sir Alex Ferguson at Manchester United <laughs> yeah. in a way. But all of a sudden, when you're on the hook for, forget the near 100 million they paid for Cristiano Ronaldo, but when you're on the hook for 31 million basic a year and all the bonuses and everything has to move to his timeline, all of a sudden you've cut out all your wiggle room and you've undone a lot of the good work. The reason that Juventus become dominant is because of their business plan on and off the field, because of not just the sports side of it, but the fact that they're making money from this great stadium. They're one of the very few teams in, one of the very few clubs in Serie A who own their own stadium, so are able to commercially exploit it in that way. And in that period, Juventus are kind of like Manchester United in the first decade of the Premier League. They're building themselves this almost, um, almost uncatchable lead ahead of everyone else. And I guess much like Manchester United, they've got to get something wrong mm. to allow everyone the ability to catch up. And they have got a lot wrong. And like I said, it's not Ronaldo's fault specifically. The deal to sign him, and yeah, they can talk about, um, you know, Facebook follows and all, all that sort of stuff and the, the way they've been able to set up commercial deals. And Nicky Bandini sort very eloquently about that before. On the pitch, it has been detrimental to what they can do. And you, you see it here. Not just the fact that they're a team that still expects to play to a Ronaldo to a certain extent, but the, the bits they need to regenerate and haven't been able to. And for the moment, we can kick it down, the, kick the can down the road about the about the defence being a bit old because it's still more than serviceable. However, the midfield is one pace. The midfield has been one pace for a very long time. To me, it feels like a very unbalanced squad. You mm. see, they've lived on their laurels for. Quite some time. When when I asked uh, whether they deserve to be in the Champions League, obviously, yeah, uh, they've qualified three to the last sixteen, etc. But the Juventus that we saw the other night against Chelsea is not really the Juventus of their glory days. And no. and no. they were found out by a point that Miguel mentioned in passing, which is look. Well, one of their weaknesses, their Achilles heel, if you want to get all sort of classical about it, is that without Chiesa, they do look like a, a, a team of journeymen. And that's no disrespect to all the great players. Uh, Suchesny, for example, saved them from getting an even worse beating, worse, I'd have yeah. thought. Well, yeah, much worse. He just, he basically just, Chiesa just changes the pace of the team, doesn't he? That's his, I mean, he's obviously a very good player for all sorts of reasons, but his main effect in Juventus at the moment is that he just he, he injects so much pace. He just he uh, he sets the pace, uh, and and without him, they just look so much more pedestrian. I suppose it, it um, also he gives uh, Allegri a different dimension as well in that regard. And I mean, I, and I, I suppose that's that's one thing just to touch on what Andy's saying as well that it feels like Chiesa is part of ultimately a different project to what half the squad is part of. Mm. And they are, because there are, they, Juventus do have some good young players there they've invested in, but it's like they, they won't really see the full benefit of this until they have a, a complete overhaul because there's so much essentially 
detritus from previous <laughs> from previous that, projects. That's it, and it takes time, doesn't it? I mean, it takes time in any situation, but particularly with the market being what it is at the moment. How mm. do you get rid of some of those contracts? I mean, you know, if we go back to actually, let's forget Ronaldo for a second. Even when we talk about Juventus being really well run, and we we talk about the victories in the transfer market, like the, the regeneration of Andrea Pirlo, for example. Even that became the the idea that they're them signing people on freeze was you know something that was part mm. of how well run they were. I think amongst sometimes when we look at the Ronaldo deal, we cannot look at the Aaron Ramsey deal, yeah, which is symptomatic of something else. I think because thinking that we're the club that makes smart free transfers, you know, we we we, we can do that to to build around our key players, and Ramsey has. I mean, been good in in parts for Juventus and Pirlo himself, when he became coach, absolutely loved him, for example. And Allegri very much wanted to work with him the the, the first time. Mm. They were planning to use him as this sort of number 10 type figure before he he got biffed um, off the back of another unsuccessful Champions League campaign. And um, Ramsey earns so much money. Like, Like even a move back to the Premier League it's not really possible at the moment yeah. unless he takes a pay cut because he's getting paid that much money. How much money do you have it, to be it, earning it, to be out of the price range? It, or not, not out of the price range, out of what Premier League clubs decide is reasonable. Yeah. It, it is very much contract from a different era now, from the pre-COVID yeah. era. And this is something we're seeing across Europe and that clubs like Juventus and Barcelona have had a particular problem with that they can shift these players on huge contracts because why would they go? Mm. Um, but also, I mean, I think that feeds into something bigger as well. I mean, we've discussed this on the show a lot, but I mean, I sometimes get depressed basically by the state of European football, especially when you look at leagues like Germany, Italy, France, where one club has been so dominant for so long. And usually, as, as, you, as, you've, as you've referenced earlier, Andy, what, what happens with a lot of these clubs, and it happened to Manchester United in the 90s, they get into these kind of self-perpetuating cycles where they have this advantage. They obviously, that advantage, or they get ahead of the game, that advantage actually makes them kind of more commercially lucrative and that keeps feeding the beast. So they get, they're like they able to buy better players and it all, it strengthens at every turn. But I do wonder, well, well that, I mean, if, if that just followed logically, as you say, it requires them to make a mistake. But if that just followed logically, then it'd be impossible for any of these clubs to catch up. And to a degree, it's happening in Munich, but then... Or in Germany, but then a big difference is Bayern at the right now feels so clever in that regard. But I do wonder, and whether Juventus show this, is that no matter how well you run, no, no matter what your strength, it's impossible not to allow a certain complacency to get in. It kind of, and it feels like that complacency is absolutely manifested in basically these. <laughs> These these fat contracts. Yeah. To where it's almost like you know football's version of gout. <laughs> they gorge themselves in so many points and so many wins. They just hand you know and they dispense these huge contracts to players like. I think it's a particular issue, of course, when it's players in their late twenties. Because I mean, and this is an issue for these clubs now. There's no reset. It's not an issue no. for clubs like Paris Saint Germain or Manchester City or Manchester United necessarily. But, but if you're not wanting to condense the market to only a couple of potential yeah. suitors. Yeah, yeah. And on that point, Damiano asks on Twitter, given the quality he has to work with, how bad a job do you think Allegri is doing? He's not doing a bad job, is he? I think, well, I've, I think you can look at the league and say they're short of the required standard at the moment. It's not given that they're going to make the top four. 
they're arguably too far off to to win the title already. I know there's that always that feeling of the <laughs> ominous march of Juventus and will will they catch up? And I already think it's too far for them, particularly with the performances and and, and the results. But it's it's interesting how they've kind of reduced their expectations under Allegri, and I think post Pirlo as well. The fact that they realise that there is some restructuring to be done and they believe it should be done by a coach who can probably get you results whilst doing that and get get you results without playing fantastic football which is you know something something that Allegri has proved time and time again it's why they wanted to shift him on mm. and move to a sort of more I guess a more commercially viable football in, yeah. in, in the way that Manchester City and Bayern Munich have done yeah. very very openly and very very self-consciously um, I do think at the moment, if Allegri is doing a sort of restructure, he's still cleaning out the garage at the moment. It, you know, he's 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 not gone to like redoing the kitchen or the bathroom. We're not at that point yet. It's a bit weird though. This, I mean, they finally get rid of the the siege weapon up front, who has to be kind of whatever you think about Ronaldo. I mean, he's mm. his mobility is limited these days. You have to move him into position, which kind of restricts any team. And now, just at that point, they appoint. A manager who is for the first time in what in you know in three years for them a pragmatist. I mean, surely this is the this is the time when you'd go for something when you are trying to reshape when you'd actually fully commit to a new model or even something kind of uh, something more German, shall we say? Bring Sarri back. You bring yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. It, it, it might be yeah. about the coach. It might be about the coach because you know when you look at that game at Stamford Bridge, for me the difference when you look at the two sides, you don't know anything about them. Um, you look at the coaches and you think to yourself, well, every single one of those Chelsea players look better than they looked last season. That they are a triumph of coaching. Right. There's no, yeah. there's they, no they doubt about better. that. They look better. So a coach gets, even with poor result, um, resources or lesser resources, mm. if, if Allegri can make those players play above what they're used to or the level that they um, are playing at the moment, then it's a success, I would have thought. Yeah, I mean... It's, it's or there's a in, in, ter- in terms of style, you know, you're not gonna you're not gonna turn um, Weston McKenney into Pablo Imar, and he's he's someone who like McKenney's someone who's done a great job and and overperformed expectations, so he's not really the problem. But th- th- there are more of those problems. There are Rabios, there are Bentancurs, there th- there are other issues. I know I'm mentioning all midfield players, basically <laughs> because midfield is is their problem. But you're right, I think Dotton, in that if you're a coach who says that my philosophy is results. When you're not getting those results, yeah. it's a tough sell. Still talking Champions League, uh, we've been used over the last few seasons to seeing the likes of Dortmund in, in Germany and Atletico in Spain be the sort of the bad boys, if you like, the upsetters of the Champions League, the ones uh, that come out of nowhere and do really well. They may not have won the Champions League yet, but nevertheless, you're looking at two teams here who've made... you know, Finalists. Certainly, yeah, or if, if yeah. not even finalists. They've made... The knockout stage is mm. almost part of what you'd expect them to do. Not this season, though. What has gone wrong? Should we start perhaps with Atletico? Mm. It's not the same Atletico, is it, well, under Simeone? 
Yeah, um, well, Atletico have a minimal chance of getting through, but it's going to require the sort of bite that uh, we haven't really seen this season. And it's been on the wane for some time. I mean, it's, you know, I, th- I think in terms of approach, both clubs are actually, they, they show opposite sides to being potential upstarts or have at least have done over the last decade. I mean, and, and actually in terms of outlook, they're very different in that regard. There's almost, it almost feels like precisely because Dortmund have gone for, they're always buying the next best thing in football as it's going to, to constantly replenish themselves and it's such a young squad. That does feed into what has been a very identifiable naivety. That's not just a kind of a, you know, the obvious cliche from how young they are. You can see it in how they play. Uh, but of course, what what it does allow is sometimes some brilliantly energetic performances in Europe um, that, that 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 really excite. It might have been one of the best teams to watch for so long. On the other side, we, we, Atletico. Ever since Simeone's been there, it's almost like and they've they've made a virtue and they are quite distinctive in this regard. This kind of hard bitten experience. I mean, that was that was I think most visible maybe in probably actually the twenty sixteen run even more so than twenty fourteen because they had they they'd already. They they weren't just going through for their first final in so long, um, as was the case in twenty fourteen. But twenty sixteen, they they had that European experience to go. They should have won that but final. Yeah, that's yeah. the one they should have won. Is yeah, it? completely. Yeah. Although I, I mean, it probably wasn't as good as a performance as twenty fourteen, was it? They, they were probably a better team, but I don't, I don't know. They they felt a bit worn out after yeah. winning the league in 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 twenty fourteen. Yeah, they, yeah. They were, and, and that was uh, an achievement in itself. The yeah, it really it really was. And of course, Diego Costa's hamstring went just at the, yeah, right, yeah. The, the, the start of the final and he obviously wasn't a good pick but even though they were I, I guess you could argue technically closer because they were seconds away from winning it until Ramos yeah. scored the equaliser in Lisbon it did feel as if they had the measure of Real Madrid for yeah, more of, yeah, of, yeah. of 2016 didn't they and Real Madrid were physically flagging in that final before weirdly out atletiing Atleti by hanging on and hanging on and hanging yeah. on and finding finding a way to win in in the end, but I think it's it's an issue of both of perception with both Atletico mm. and Dortmund because we do remember those finalists of 2013, 2014, and 2016. I think we can think it's broadly the same team. You know, there are some of the same protagonists there. Of course, most of the players have changed at both those clubs, but because that's the way in which they entered into the modern. European football consciousness, at least in the Champions League context, there's the sense that they're a continuation of that, especially Atletico because they've got the same coach. I don't think that is the case. This Atletico side is so green at this level compared to, and it, it shouldn't be, you could argue, with the amount of money that's the same thing on the with the Dortmund side from what Miguel's saying. Yeah, green as well. That's the thing. It's not just about the experience of the players and the amount they've played at, at, at this level. And I mean, I think that's, this is like the interesting thing with Dortmund. They've got this reputation of being, you know, this team of young Tyros, which again was the reputation they had when they got back into the final and got into the final against Bayern at Wembley in 2013. The fact is, if you look at just the wage bills, actually, mm. of Atletico um now compared to 2014 of Dortmund now compared to 2013 and you know everyone used to say about Dortmund at the time well you know they've got a smaller wage bill than QPR and they've ended up in <laughs> yeah. the, I mean that said a lot about QPR at the time we've got to say <laughs> as well but and they've ended up in the, the, the Champions League final and, and winning championships and all, all the rest of it it's what you were saying Miguel about going further up the tree and developing and having to 
maintain by spending more on players, spending more on players' contracts, which mm. is an issue. And Dortmund's wage bill at the moment, I mean, Atletico's is enormous. Yeah. But I think if you look at, we, we sometimes overlook because we look at Bellingham and Holland and those players who, who, who really excite us. And the next one will be Yusuf from Mokoko, for example. What we don't look at is um, Emre Can, who got himself sent off in this after coming on a... Shocking. After being meant gracious. to be the clear head that <laughs> sorted it all out. And, you know, you look at Mats Hummels, who is, is having a mixed aging process, I think <laughs> is the politest way of putting that. These are players that you bring, A, to win now, and B, cost a lot of money. Not just to bring them, and these are both transfers that cost Dortmund over 25 million in fees each, but the wages they're on, and that is arguably the issue, isn't it? You know, it's it's it's, it's never really about the young players. It's about the experienced players. You're only ever as good as your experienced players. Now, I, th- I think that's that's pretty clear. But I mean, having said that, Miguel, I was wondering whether next season and Dortmund and Atletico, to a certain extent, are going to pay the price for not making it through to the knockout stages. If Atletico don't don't make it there to knockout stages, in what sense? Oh, well, in terms of the players that they can attract and uh, uh, the funding well, that they can attract. I suppose making the knockout stages isn't quite as important as making the Champions League again next year. Um, it's more. Well, that's yeah. more important. You know? it's, it's quite depressing when you put it like that. No, I'm, not, I'm not saying yeah, that yeah, you're yeah, wrong, yeah. but it's, it's quite depressing. When yeah, you but put how do you like work that. that one out? I mean, because ultimately, it's about just getting into the competition. That that it's about. I mean, again, we're getting into kind of what it's about wider constructs as well, and that all of these clubs are adapting to a new post-COVID, post. Premier League rise reality and it, we Atletico are in a kind of a strange position I find. like I think to be fair I think you're right Andy um, Dort, Dortmund obviously they've signed players to win now but you, you they still have their model in place they know what yes. they're about that, that's going to be that's going to be kind of self-perpetuating Atletico are in a very strange position I think for all sorts of reasons I mean even the fact that in Spain they can't really cast themselves up starts anymore I mean, they're one of the they're one of the Super League three, as you say. Their wage bill is absolutely huge, and given the decline of Barcelona and Madrid, they're kind of they're kind of pretty much on a par. They're not really overachieving the same way anymore, and it, it, and and it does feel like they're at that certain point. I mean, we, we, obviously, it's not been the same as this Juventus. Is the Leicester syndrome, you know, the Leicester City well, syndrome. It's it's not it's not quite Juventus or Bayern, but there's almost I don't know. It's obviously not given they're not dominated in that way, but it does feel as if. A similar kind of sen- a similar bloatedness or something like that to them now, and he even yes. and even feeds into yes. Simeone as well. He's been there so long. Obviously, they've got for the last past few seasons. There's been all sorts of talk about Simeone also trying to kind of refresh his approach or bring something new. But ultimately, his nature is still something that's quite out of step with European football. And it, they, for me, when I look at Atletico now, even though there's they have the, they still have this constant turnover of players, it's a club. Kind of hanging on to the to the remnants of the era that's just gone. I think you look at the. I think both Atletico and Dortmund. It's interesting mm. since that golden era, the amount of big players that have left and then gone back. And yeah. you know, you know, you look at. Um, I suppose Griezmann's the most recent obvious version of that. Diego Costa's return was obviously a, a sporting disaster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Torres before that as well. That worked yeah, out, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Felipe Luis, one yeah. of those. And then with, with Dortmund, you look at um, Nuri Shahin, Goetze, 
you look at Mats Hummels, for example. Yeah. He's he's one of those. And you're right. It's as if they can't let go of of, of that time. For Atletico, I think in terms of Spanish football, they're almost like the Prince Regent, aren't yeah, they? Yeah. They've inherited by default. They're making the most of... And their rebuild is further ahead than Real Madrid's or, or Barcelona's at, at, at the moment. But I do wonder, especially with Real Madrid coming up on the rails, if they're kind of wasting that advantage. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And we're, we're seeing that, certainly in a, a European context. Their, their performances at home have been very poor so far this season as, as, as well. And... Um, yeah, they've won, what, three out of the last nine, I think, if you look back overall. They're just about hanging on on the title race. But yeah. like, part of that is to do with the, the the weaknesses of others. They do look as if there's, they're not as focused as last season. Mm. And the transfers have had an effect on that. Like I don't think they would have bought Cunha, who, again, missed a brilliant chance to get them a point right at the end yesterday um, against Milan, a game which they, they deserve to lose. I don't, I don't think there's any way of getting around that. And you just wonder, like they spent a fortune on Cunha, and what is he doing there in the context of Griezmann? It's really, yeah. it's really ridiculous. And still, there's the sense that before there was this Simeone framework, and I think as far as tactics goes, his is one you can describe as a, as a framework. Yeah, it's, it's not micromanaged to the nth degree. He expects players of personality to interpret it, and I think in a way. And if we're talking about a transition in style, that worked really well for them last season, particularly domestically. It's not working so well. And I think those this season, I think those extra signings have muddied the waters, but they've not been good in Europe for a long time. And this has been a particular low point because, of course, the, the, the loss to, to, to Milan is, is a really bad, a really painful and a potentially ruinous result. But if you look at the performances of this, they could have lost every game in this yeah, group yeah, so yeah. far and they could have well, a I mean, little complaint. Put, put bluntly, and I mean, it feels like it's kind of sacrilege to say it given his status at the club, but they do employ a manager for all his status who is um, playing football that's out of step with the top level in Europe. And out of step with what his players are good at as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they can't even defend deep anymore, yeah, can yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the thing. Um, it, it does feel like Spanish football is... Right, or it's set up now for basically. I mean, ironically, maybe a Marco Rosa, um, <laughs> but for for some some coach to come in with one of the upper half clubs to do come in and do something different and completely take the league by storm. Because Spanish football is there's a sense of stagnation about it. It's still producing so much young talent, but tactically. It uh, it is behind Europe now, and almost every coach will say that to you now. I think that's true. I think even it's, Sevilla would be that team. Yeah, I think if they had a slightly more ambitious coach. Yeah, and I, I really like the job that Lopetegui's done there. He's not going to be a coach of league winners there. Yeah, this is the thing, and like, uh, it's frustrating because I think we said this at the start of the season, of the pod. Like Sevilla, do feel like if they just had that slight upgrade, like they should be in Real Sociedad's position, and yeah. and also. They'd be, I think, to be like ultimately. Do, do, unfortunately, does any of us, does any of us really think that Real Sociedad are going to stay there for the season? I can't help feel they're going to no. they're going to fade away. Whereas I think Sevilla, because they've got a better class of player, they've got more experience, better depth. Th- yeah, better depth. They they would be more set to actually may- maybe take a title challenge further. And it is a frustration about Spanish football now. It's fascinating watching both of you discuss this because you you know you latched on one point about Spanish football and you told us so much in those few minutes there. I, I do wonder though, and 
you know, we're having a conversation about Spanish football without mentioning Barcelona, not because you were there a couple of days ago uh, yourself, mm. Andy, but uh, feel free to bring that into this conversation. I do wonder, though, whether it's not Rosa who has the more pressure of those two uh, coaches, uh, Simeone and Rosa. And the, the tweet from Sam asked that very same question or suggest that is there much pressure on Marco Rosa at Dortmund due to uh, their early exit in the Champions League or is he safe in uh, because of his league form position at the moment well I think the distinction Sam makes there between league form slash position is very interesting because form and position is very very mm. different um Dortmund should have never got themselves in this hole in the Champions League after winning the first two games of the group and then going out before match day six that is quite an achievement. Yeah, yeah. And the two games in the middle against Ajax, not the stuffing out of them, but they've looked not sharp enough. They've looked tactically a bit naive, which is on the coach. I think Rosa's position is interesting because if you go back right to the start of the season, the first game they lose at Freiburg, who had a brilliant start to the season, um, he's challenged by a journalist on on his tactics. In fact, I'm not even sure he's really challenged. It's, he, was, he was asked, you know, the, the shape that you started with and moved from, was that an issue? And he got really uppity with the journalist in a way that coaches who are normally under a lot more pressure than in their like second or third game of the season do. He had quite um, a difficult last season at Borussia Mönchengladbach with the fans really unhappy after they knew he was going and they felt a bit sold out by him. So I do think there's pressure attached to to him personally because of that. I do think he'll get time at Dortmund. But again, as I was saying, the, the difference that Sam makes between their form and position, arguably their best player so far has been Gregor Kobel, the, the goalkeeper they signed from Stuttgart. It's been absolutely fantastic so far. They're one point behind Bayern, but it, it feels temporary, I think. you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment look younger feel like you add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with juvederm voluma xc reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with juvederm volure xc for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. What is going on with French football, though, Andy? I mean, this is quite a shocking story, actually. I saw uh, what happened when Lyon took on Marseille at the Olympic Lyon Stadium, and uh, it was it was shocking. Um, Dimitri Payet, again, at the centre of... Uh, not of, you know, through any fault of his own, of crowd trouble in France... This is the last thing the league would have wanted because this is suggesting that they're not in control of even providing safety for players it's, on the pitch. It's more than suggesting that. I think players feel unsafe and I think players have got every right to feel unsafe. Um, I think some of the analysis, as I think I touched on, on on the ramble earlier in the week, has been a little bit off the mark. I mean, Dimitri Payet has been at the centre of a, a few of these. Of course, there was this crack we, we talked about between Nice and Marseille. Um, there was this where he was hit by a bottle of water for any... A full might have bottle of water. Yeah, I mean, it would have hurt. Oh, like, pe- people, people saying that wouldn't hurt have no idea. Yeah. Gosh, man. Uh, and he, he needed medical attention. And At that point, they should have called the game off and that it didn't... It, it wasn't immediately called off. was ridiculous, I thought, but we'll come back to that in a minute. You asked why, and I think a few people have asked why Pyatt is the focus of this. It was even like a quite long um, article in Kicker earlier in the week, the German football magazine, saying, well, these are the reasons why Dimitri Pyatt is at the centre of the story. The reason he's at the centre of it is he takes the corners. That that is the main thing. That is the reason that he's been hit by objects a, a, a couple he's of times. He's to the crowd. Yeah. And he's actually, he actually said in his statement to the police that um, I'm, I'm scared. Of, I'm scared to take corners now, and you can understand that. But it's not just been him. You know, we remember like Leo Messi had a phone charger thrown at him during uh, Le Classique, and that's before someone like came up to him on the pitch, a pitch invader. Um, the, 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 this is a problem that is huge in French football, and I think the league put it um the LFP they they said this is destroying the image of our game internationally and i think that's right the thing is it's a lot more visible internationally because they've got what 8 to 10 new tv deals internationally since Thanks Leo, Leo Messi, Messi's yeah. signed so i mean just to reiterate the season in which arguably the greatest player ever to have played the game comes and plays in your league which should be and to an extent is the ultimate commercial boost because it's not too dramatic to say that the influx he's of extra money. He's saved the league. He's saved some of the clubs. There's no doubt about it. After the early shutdown, really 
diminish the status of, of Ligue 1, which has never been good at marketing itself mm. internationally. Mm. And now what it means at the moment is that there are more people to see this anarchy in the mm. stands and the abandonments of some of the games. I mean, there's obviously a lot of wider factors going on in here as well. I mm. mean, first of all, there are, I mean, the, the, the very basic fact, the very basic reality of fans returning to stadiums, just as, I mean, like, it creates a kind of an emotion in the air. Um, yeah. But I mean, it's impossible, I, like, as has happened tr- throughout history, throughout the modern history of kind of, 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 um, of crowds attending sporting events, uh, there's, there's societal factors at play and I mean, these things that usually always come out of social unrest and, well, I mean, look at the moment kind of Europe's going through, particularly post-COVID um, and I mean, it, what these events usually are, basically, it's, it's, it's people lashing out, isn't it? Yeah, I, don't, I, don't I think that. so. Yeah. The, the, the problem here, as you pointed out earlier, Andy, the problem here is you've got a product and you can't play more than three or four minutes of a 90-minute mm. game because of hooliganism. Whatever the societal problems are there, as far as the French Football Association but, but, is yeah. concerned, it, they have to sort this Yeah, you're right, you're right. Problem. And, and there's End no the story. That's that's the issue, Dotton, absolutely. That there's there's no clear leader. Um the league are saying, why aren't the clubs dealing with it? Um the clubs are saying we need help from the league or the government. The government are, are saying, Well, we've given you the tools, just get on with it. So really no one's taking responsibility. And I think the fact that it took the game, what 110 minutes, I think, or 100 and, um, 105 minutes to be called off from that incident to the bit where the decision's actually taken for it to be called off. I mean, it's an open and shut case. If a player is injured mm-hmm. like by something like that, you've, you've got to call the game off. And there's the provision to do that already in the league statutes. Having said that, the, the league have, have not led from the front on this mm-hmm. in, in the way that they they should have done and it's because it's a fundamentally weak institution that's one of the issues here I mean there are a lot of other issues I mean in terms of the clubs where they need a bit of help and you would you would ask for example it was it was examined like because you're you're allowed to take a bottle of water into the ground for example we're talking talking about the object that hit Dimitri Payet you're not allowed to have a cap on it if you watch the film the water has a cap on it of course it has and there are other things that are getting in there that, that that shouldn't be. And the thing is, because of COVID, and this is a COVID problem, because in terms of the antagonism between ultra groups and the French football authorities, that predates COVID and that was never really dealt with. So that's been brewing for a while, as, as Miguel says. But at the moment, on a very practical level, there aren't enough trained stewards at the grounds because while COVID was on there was no provision made for them by the clubs and we saw a similar thing in the UK with stewards being laid off Gunnosaurus being laid off all all that sort of other stuff Um, so basically loads of trained stewards went off and got other jobs so now you haven't got enough trained stewards to deal I'm, with something like this, which is a I'm, gathering I'm of 55,000 sure. people. I'm not sure trained stewards would have solved this particular uh, well, it, problem. It stops, it stops it, it, people it, getting uh, stuff uh, in uh, that they shouldn't. Uh, uh, Andy, do, do you think, is there any element to this actually as well, whatever we're lashing out about societal issues, but also lashing out about what, I mean, just everyone we're talking about, the fact that even 
what the French league is. The, mm-hmm. the I mean, the, the sense of identity given it's PSG at at the very top of it. Given that they're suddenly selling, they're trying to make it a more marketable product. Is it is it some sort of kind of reach for? All, I, I don't want to say authenticity, but often that's what kind of ultra see themselves as. Or maybe I mean, I mean, like the protests that were happening before COVID were the ultras were feeling that they were putting up more and more sexist and homophobic banners, which is just you know completely mm. unacceptable. Their argument that was they were doing it because they feel that the culture, the real fabric of of the football is being destroyed. They've got no excuse for that. I wouldn't condone that for a second. Um but it's clear on the other hand that the league has has, has failed to recognise mm. those fears, has failed to get any meaningful sort of dialogue with them. Um but you know, on every organisational level, it seems that if there is a clear message from the league, the, referee, the referees haven't got it. Yeah. Because it, it, mm-hmm. the, the referee, if he comes out and says, like, the, the match is off now. Of course. Th- th- then, it, then, it, then it's off. It protects the players. I'll tell you why. Because... That, that's got to be the referee's if, number one priority, If right? fans do not know that throwing a missile with such velocity at a player which could have ended tragically, let's face it, it mm-hmm. came from the back, into the back of mm-hmm. his head, he wasn't expecting it. If fans don't, if they believe that that doesn't necessarily result in the cancellation of a game, well, you can imagine what's going to happen in the future. It's going to be more and more precarious for players to go and take corners in France. A decision has to be made. The question, as you pointed out, is who has to take that leadership? Is it the government? Is it the league or is it the clubs, Miguel? I think what we've what we've seen, though, sorry, just to, just to mm-hmm. cut in, is that closing the stadiums, um, fining clubs, closing stand individual stands and docking points, it's not making a difference because it's been they're, done they're, they're, already they're, they're, this season. It's been done su- to Nice and Marseille. They're superficial measures, aren't they? They don't, they don't actually attack the core of the problem. Exactly, exactly. People want to see action, which is back but a remedy is saying. something different, yeah, isn't yeah. it? Which is back to what you were saying earlier on, Miguel, about the wide problem in society. But that question again, who should take the leadership now? Who, at this stage, is it down to? Is it down to the French government? Is it down to the league or down to the club? Well, ultimately, these things have to be a collaborative process. Isn't it? That's the only way you start to actually... And, and and I mean we we saw it even thirty years ago in England. As soon as when it gets to the point where people are actually kind of trying to push the blame somewhere else, it doesn't exactly. It's not exactly the sort of atmosphere that encourages people coming together to figure out a way out of it. That's actually what's required. Not not kind of constantly passing the book, but the 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 key figure. Or sorry, the leading figures and all involved actually getting together and, and working out what next. I mean, because it should be a brain, because it's, it's a usually complicated issue. Toujours très peu d'élan. Deux pas au maximum, trois peut-être. C'est parti, la panique Est-ce qu'elle est dedans Elle est pas dedans. Elle est pas... Oui, elle est dedans. Oui, elle est dedans. Oh là là. In a moment, we'll get a game of the week from uh, both of you, but you'd be delighted uh, to hear that we get lots and lots of uh, questions on uh, mostly Twitter, but all social media for both of you. And do remember, you can uh, tweet us at any time or get in contact via social media at Football Ramble, at Dotson Adebayo, at Andy Brassel, and at Miguel Delaney. This is from Robert 
who says, can Andy please share his thoughts on the possibility that all three Portuguese clubs making the knockout rounds of the Champions League and how it might affect the second half of the domestic league? Good question. Yeah, and obviously a historic achievement for Sporting to get back in the knockout rounds after... A, such an incredibly bad start. They lost 5-1 to Ajax on the on the opening game and Ruben Amorim's tactics were criticised um, domestically for being too open. And it's the first time they've they've been in the knockout rounds for 13 years. It's, it's incredible on um, a relatively limited budget. Um, obviously, Benfica and Porto set fair as, as, as well and they've, they've done pretty well so far. Um, I think it's, it's a great thing for Portuguese football in the short term, I do think in the medium term, there's kind of an issue because I know what Robert's getting at and how it might affect the second half of the domestic league. Would it make it more open? If you look at the table, there's a historically big gap, even in what is a three-team league, and there's no getting away from that. Only two teams outside that top three have ever won it. Belenensis in 1946 and Bovista in 2001. Other than that, the big three have always won it. There's a historically big gap between the the, the top three and the rest in in points so far. So I I don't think it can make that much of a difference, even stepping away from the fact that they've both got very, very um, complete squads. I think if you add that and the fact that if these three make it, they're both going to rake in what are significant sums in Portuguese football terms in terms of um, market share, TV, prize money. I'm not sure it does a lot for the competition. It it does a lot for the competition between the big three, but it doesn't give anyone else the chance of a look in, which historically is unlikely at the best of times. Uh, this from Jamie. Uh, what can we expect from a Giovanni von Bronckhurst team at Rangers? He's the new manager there, of course. How did he overcome Ajax and PSV at Feyenoord in 2016-17? to And why could he not repeat it? Is his European record something to be concerned about? Do you fancy having a pop at that? Who, who wants to have a pop at that one? Giovanni van Bronckhurst. <laughs> yeah, I don't <laughs> Yeah, um, it was an incredible achievement to to win the title at, at, at Feyenoord. But Van Bronckhorst was never looked upon as someone who was going to be the bright future of Dutch coaching. A, a little bit like Frank de Boer, actually. I, it felt for, to a lot of people like uh, right place, right time, even though he did it, he, he did a good job. He had a, Is this it, the Crystal Palace, Frank de Boer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the very same. Um, he, he did a great job that season. But I think in terms of why they couldn't repeat it, you look at um, when they got into the Champions League and they got drawn in a difficult group, Manchester City were in it, and they started to pick up a few beatings by more wealthy and superior teams. It was really difficult to recover from that. And they never really did recover from that. And I think it's quite interesting that since leaving Feyenoord, Van Bronckhorst has only had one sort of relatively short spell in in China. It, there are a few question marks. I, I, I think there's, there's a right to, to, to be healthily sceptical. It's an interesting one as well, isn't it? Because actually people go on about his Rangers legacy. He didn't play for the club that long or that much. Mm. Yeah, it's been cast as if he's been coaxed back into management because of his love for Rangers. I mean, there's all this sort of talk that he used to kind of, you know... Yeah, he, he played for them longer than Steven Gerrard did. 
<laughs> but, 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 but it has been, I mean, but that's the thing. I mean, because Gerard obviously wanted, he's long wanted to be a coach. But, but as you say about Frank Bronkhorst, we don't know really whether that's the case. So, why is this specific Rangers job that has, has brought him back in? They love a former player these days, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Despite the clubs, despite so much evidence to. Uh, <laughs> that you should go in a different direction. Pep Guardiola increasingly the exception rather than the rule. So it's food time, as I call it. Games of the week. Well, <laughs> as what you expect me to call it. I love oh, my I know, nosh. I know, I know. I love my nosh. So we've asked both of you to recommend a game of the week for us. And this week in particular, lots of different regions you could have chosen. Uh, I've gone for Juventus Atlanta. Uh, one, because at this point, uh, Atlanta are a bit like Real Betis a few seasons ago under Setien, where they feel like the team you have to watch every week because every single game will provide some sort of chaos or entertainment. And for the second part of that, of course, because it, uh, I want to see how Juventus respond to Tuesday, especially given that this is precisely the sort of fixture where you would think Juventus feel they have to reassert the natural order, which is that upstarts like Atlanta don't come to. Uh, I was about to say the Stadio del Alpi. Obviously, it's on the on the site, not no longer. Shall <laughs> 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 give, give, give my the youth have grown up with? Um, yeah, they they they, they want, you, you don't you don't go there and um, and take it to Juve. So I think that's a pretty fascinating game, and I suppose to accompany it. <laughs> so <should I? laughs> uh, so there's, there's an Italian place near me that does a good cannoli. I know that's not that's not cannoli's not really uh, Piemont food or cuisine, yeah, is it? It's, right. it's more. Uh, it's, it's it's better than what you're getting from the chain pizza place next to the stadium. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think it's a positive step. I, I actually just. To cut across for a second, I was in when I was in Turin for that um, that last Juventus Chelsea game, the first game in the group stage. I had that uh, that always usually frustrating experience where I I got into Turin at about half three, and obviously I didn't have much time. And I all basically all week I'd been looking forward to the trip to get a, a nice Italian meal, and especially after so long being without getting to go to Italy. And of course, you get to Turin and everywhere's closed <laughs> at, that, at, that, at that particular point of the day. You, you could have pulled into a 24 hour McDonald's, though, for an Italian. It, it, would, it would just be Italian burger. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but I've, I've never set foot in a McDonald's in Italy. It would just be wrong. I agree with you. Yeah. There. I agree with you. Okay, one game of the week from you, Andy. Um, Sunday night, Real Madrid versus Sevilla. Ooh. With Sevilla, I want to believe. As we said before, I really want to believe. Finally got the Champions League monkey off their backs this week, um, beating uh, Wolfsburg. And I think that they've, they've had a strange old week because they just about snatched that um, draw with Alaves in the, the, the first of those two home games in what was essentially a game of water polo. That they got a point from that, and even Rakitic had to smash it through the puddles to get that stoppage time equaliser. It made me think, okay, they didn't go top when they had the opportunity to top, go top, but they did dig in. They're really going to have to dig in because we know that Real Madrid are nothing if 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 not well drilled. Um, I think Carlo Ancelotti's doing a pretty good job so far this season. But if we're going to believe in a real title race. A, 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 it would be quite deflating a narrow Real Madrid win from uh, a, a sort of neutral perspective. They've not always done brilliantly um, at the Bernabeu, uh, but I am going to say if Sevilla go there and get a result, 
then we're talking in terms of some sort of equality at the the top of the table. Miguel's uh, talking. Actually, to pull it out for a second, given that um, we've already discussed about where Spanish football is, a lot of talk about how it's lost its international prestige, given the, 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 it's finally lost Messi to go that. Do we think it'll be better football for? Oh, sorry, do we think it'll be a better thing for Spanish football as a whole if Madrid won or if they didn't? Because I suppose maybe there's that. If Madrid win the title, it you know fosters the perception there's still a power. But on the flip side, it, it would just feel kind of like it, as if they've almost done it for default, add to an, an image of stagnation, and it might be kind of just the league would suddenly feel more vibrant again if we did see it an outsider winner. Yeah, and you know, I think of what Valencia and yeah. Deportivo La Coruña did at the start of the 21st century for it. I'd, yeah, I, I I think the outsider. Because yeah. I think whether they win it or not this season, Real Madrid are planning to go big yeah, yeah, in, exactly, in, in, yeah. in next summer's transfer market. So I, I don't really think it makes a, yeah. an enormous amount of difference. In terms of going big, I know it's not a native particularly to either of these regions, but I'm going for a paella to a company. Um, first, Is that what you had the other night when you were in Barcelona? Uh, I didn't even have time. Did not well, even have time. Really? I had time for an Argentinian steak, but that's a different oh, really? story. Yeah. Um, uh, Anytime I'm in Barcelona, I try and go to Paco Moralgo. There's a little recommendation. Oh, nice. Right. Uh, an exe- I'm, I'm, I'm noting. exquisite restaurant. I'm noting. Right. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm going for the paella simply because... Um, at a time when, the, firstly, it's 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 the thing I can cook the best. Secondly, I think you can keep going back to it later in the week, and there are midweek fixtures coming up as well. So I think that's an important thing to cover before the next OTC, and also because since Jose Bordalas has uh, gone to Valencia, he's completely taken over my mind, and his. Uh, his dark arts are just never far from my thinking when it's about Spanish football. So even though he's not involved in this one, it's making me think about Valencia and about Paella. This was a Stack production and part of the Acast Creative Network. 